hello there. Social work, 7,300 doctoral students. This is a, a podcast lecture, which is very close to the end. This is the second to last podcast lecture that I'm going to make for this class, which is the last class that I get to have all of you in. You all started your uh, your your DSW program. Like at, at this point, you know, it's been, uh, you're almost a year into it, right? Yeah, you're going to wrap up this week and you got like another five weeks of organizational analysis and then boom, first year done. You get to start the second year. Congratulations to you. I'm really, really glad that you're all still here. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to, I don't want to talk about that now because I'm going to be talking about that later in the second podcast lecture I do. So here's what I want to do now. Um, what I want to do now is play a little bit of introduction music and that will hopefully set the tone for this podcast lecture. And as that fades out, I'm going to come back in and I'm going to start talking to you about principles. Broken windows in empty hallways A pale dead moon in a sky streaked with gray Humankindness is overflowing And I think it's gonna rain today Scarecrows dressed in the latest styles With frozen faces to keep love away Humankindness is overflowing And I think it's gonna rain today Just in case you were wondering uh, what that song was, that, that song is called I Think It's Gonna Rain Today, and that version of the song is by Nina Simone, and uh, I really, really dig it. I dig it a lot. If you have never heard that song, I hope you dug it too. There's a lot more of it. You know, I only played a little bit. You can go and find the rest of it on Spotify or Apple Music, or probably a lot of other places. You know where those are, right? You know how to find music. This is 2020. You know what's up. Uh, but anyways, now that I've talked about that, let me uh, start talking about the principle that I want to talk about on today's podcast. So this is a principle that I think I probably have mentioned before in one of our previous classes at some point. I, I, I have a memory of saying this to your group, but I just don't remember which class it was in that I said it. Uh, so you probably have heard this before. So here's the principle. Everybody, 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 everybody. Even if you stay married to the same person for like, you know, a long, long time, everybody gets married at least three times. I'm going to say that one more time. Everybody, even if you stay married to the same person for a whole large number of years, everybody gets married at least three times. When I say at least three times, it might be more, but it's at least three is what it comes down to. Uh, I think it was Margaret Mead that said that originally. And when I, I heard it and it had it explained to me, I thought it made a ton of sense. The, the, the explanation that I got when I heard it was that um, imagine somebody, you know, they, they meet and uh, they hit it off and they start to date. And then, you know, dating leads to serious dating and serious dating leads to some form of serious commitment or whatever. And uh, that's that, right? And then, at a certain point, generally speaking, 
you know, the, the phase of a relationship that is the beginning phase kind of comes to an end and people uh, do things like they buy a house together maybe, or they, they live together. Uh, if they rent a place, maybe they have kids, you know, maybe they, 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 they combine their lives basically in, in some pretty important ways. Right. And then they, they live like that for a while. And then eventually what's going to happen to most people is, uh, you know, their bodies are going to age and as their bodies age, uh, their bodies are going to change. The things that their bodies like are going to change. Uh, the sexuality that they, that, that is embodied within the body is going to change and shift and move around. A lot of changes are going to happen there. And, uh, eventually you're going to get into the, the point in your, your life and your partnership with somebody where you're looking at this person and you're thinking some version of the following. Wow. You know, I've spent a lot of time with this person and, uh, I've taken a lot of days off of the stack of tomorrow's and I've put them onto the stack of yesterday's. And now I'm realizing that the stack of yesterday's is kind of bigger probably than the stack of tomorrow's and that you enter another phase of a relationship then. So the, the, the reason that this principle is really interesting to me is that, uh, in, a, in the couple's work that I do, what I'm realizing a lot of times is that, uh, when a couple comes to see me, one, sometimes both of the people in the couple continue to be, uh, I suppose in love with or attached to interested in the person who they're, they're committed to, but, but an earlier version of that person, that that's what they seem to continue. They, they, the person who they're with has changed in some way, maybe in many ways. And somebody doesn't like those changes and they're, they're saying like, Hey, I, I don't like this. I, I, I want you to go back to the version of you that you used to be. I want us to go back to the version of us that we used to be. And when I hear that, I, I, I get a little bit worried because I think that's kind of a hard thing to overcome. Uh, because you know, you, you have to be able to, to, to move with somebody. Uh, the, so when, when you're, you're in a committed relationship with somebody, they're not going to stay the same. Inevitably, you're not going to stay the same. Inevitably, people are going to change. Still don't know what I was waiting for And my time was running wild A million dead-end streets And every time I thought I got it made It seemed the taste was not so sweet so I turn myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse Of how the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Ch-ch-ch-changes Turn and face the strange changes Don't wanna be a richer man Ch-ch-ch-changes it's gonna have to be a different man Now may change me But I can't waste time And this brings me to uh, something like some, some concepts that I can kind of tie into this principle. These come from your, your Rudy reading from this week, right? So Rudy talks about melancholia and in the, one of the chapters that you read this week. And she's pulling that, I think, from Freud's version of, of mourning and melancholia. Uh, and the way that Freud talked about mourning and melancholia is, kind of, is pretty interesting thing. So Freud noticed that throughout a, a human life, we, we lose things. 
um, things that are important to us. Sometimes these things are people or relationships, jobs, uh, places sometimes, right? Like sometimes people uh, in Freud's time in particular, um, he had to, you know, he spent most of his life in Vienna and at the end of his life as the Nazis came to power, he, he had to leave, he had to leave his home and he relocated to London. And so he, his, the, the place that was his place that was his, where he'd lived his life, you know, met his wife, raised his children, went from being uh, just a, a, a dude who wanted to be a neurologist to being Freud, world-famous psychoanalytic dude, that was gone. You know, he lost that. We all lose things. And when we lose things, it's really hard. Uh, Freud talked about the process of mourning as the process of recognizing, consciously recognizing that something or somebody that you wish was still around is not around anymore. That even though you would like, even though you would wish that this thing, this person was still available to you, it's not. They are not. Not anymore. Uh, that's hard. And uh, Freud said that when we mourn, what, what most people do if they mourn in a healthy way is they very slowly kind of... Um, Stop investing emotion into this this thing, this person, this experience, whatever it is, that's no longer available to them. And they start to reinvest their uh, their emotional energy into new relationships, new experiences, new places, etc. That's the process of mourning. It's not something you can speed up, right? It happens at its own pace. It takes for, for most people, especially if it's a really devastating loss, it takes a long, long time to mourn effectively. Um, so I'm going to kind of try to tie this to the, to romantic relationships. Um, if you, if somebody is committed to another person, they have a partnership with that person. Maybe they get married. Maybe they don't. That doesn't matter. What matters is that they're committed to one another. And let's say at some point, uh, something happens and the, the one, one half of this partnership either either dies or decides that they're no longer interested in the partnership anymore. They've found something else that they want more. And so they break up and they, they go and they do this other thing, whatever that is. When people go through that, there is a, a process of mourning that they enter into. This relationship that used to be very important to them, that used to offer them uh, a way of sustaining themselves in the world is no longer available they still have a lot of emotional energy tied up in that relationship. And over time, a person will start to take that emotional investment kind of like out of this, this connection out of this partnership, out of this relationship, which is no longer available and reinvest it into other things. That's healthy mourning. When people do that, you know, they, it's hard, but they do heal ultimately. Melancholia, on the other hand, Freud talked about this in, in the, the paper Morning and Melancholia. When somebody is a melancholic, what they do is they, 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 there's something, you know, that they have a relationship with somebody, they have something that's valuable to them that's in their life, and then, then it's not anymore. They lose it. it. It goes away. And rather than starting to remove the emotional energy that they've invested into that thing, they continue to invest in it. They cont- Basically, this is... Um, continuing to invest in something that can't give you anything in return. That's what the melancholic does. Somebody who's mourning, they, they might continue to invest 
in this thing that's not there for a little bit, but they, they do recognize that this thing is gone and that even if they continue to invest in it, it will not be able to give them a return on that investment. The melancholic kind of doesn't get that. They, they continue to invest in this thing which is gone. And because it's gone, it can't give anything back. And so it's this kind of like, um, it's a really sad thing to see a melancholic because they keep on giving their, their energy, their, their love, their affection, their, there are so many different words we could use for this. They, they keep on putting that into something that is never going to return it to them in any form, right? And that's, that's really, really tragic when that happens, um, ultimately, right? So that's the difference between mourning and melancholia. I hope that I made that kind of clear. On a simple line, day by day, the earth spins on its axis. One man struggles while another relaxes. There's a hole in my soul like a cavity. Seems like the world is held together just by gravity. The wheel keeps turning, the sky's rearranging. Look, my son, the weather is changing. I'd like to feel that you could be free. Look up at the blue skies beneath a new tree. Sometime again, you turn green and the sea turns red. My son, I said, the power of accents over my head. Now to tie mourning and melancholia to the, the principle I was just giving you, right? I've seen a lot of times in my work that, um, you know, basically person one and person two meet each other. They like each other. They hit it off. They, they, they start to date, they start to commit, they really commit, whatever. And then at a certain point, you know, like they're, they're both changing, but let's just say that person one starts to want person two to be the person two that they were before. They want to, they want the person to go back to the sort of like, um, an earlier version of what person two was because they're still in love with that earlier version and they're not necessarily too crazy about the current version of person two. All right. This is where problems exist because that, that earlier version of person two, that version is not the version that they are now. Now the version they are now is, you know, came out of that earlier version, but it's different. It's not the same version. It's not the same person. And and I find that if people can't like kind of um, continually fall in love with the new version of their romantic partner, they're they're in a lot of trouble. There was a you know I've had to listen to a couple of episodes of On Being as part of this class. There was a, an episode of On Being where Krista Tippett was interviewing a guy. He's a writer, Brazilian writer, named Paulo, Paulo Coelho. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, he became famous for writing this book called The Alchemist. He's written a lot of other things, but that's probably his biggest, most well-known book. But anyways, he's been married to the same person for like a really long time. He's pretty old now, and uh, him and his wife have been married for a long time. And, and in this interview, he kind of like described how how kind of crazy he was about his wife. And, uh, you know, Krista Tippett noticed that they'd been married for a long time. And she she commented on that. And the guy said that sometimes people ask him, 
how is it that you keep on managing to be like so deeply kind of in love with infatuated with enamored by um this this the same person year after year after year after year they asked paulo coelho that and his answer was i don't i don't do that and people were like what do you mean you're still married to the same person clearly you do he's like no i'm not married to the same person actually because that's the trick the trick is that the person i married way back when that's not the person i'm married to today i'm married to a different person today and the person that i was that's not who she's married to now she's married to like a totally different me because time has gone by and we've experienced stuff and because we've experienced stuff we've changed it's way different now we're way different our relationship is different our our bodies are different our lives are different you know and the the trick is to not um continue to be kind of like a melancholic who is in love with this earlier version of somebody because that's not the version that I got. That's not the version who's, who's in my life anymore. Right. So I think that that's, that's an interesting thing. And and I, I hope that this principle makes sense as I describe it to you. Moving on from that, what I want to do is I want to talk about something else that was part of your work for this week. I assigned the film marriage story. I wanted people to watch that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've never, I've never used this film for this class or any class before, but I, I wanted to use it for this class and I wanted to use it close to the end of the class. And the reason I wanted to do that is because this film it really illustrates something that I think is really important to doing work with couples. It, it illustrates remarkably well, in my opinion, what can happen if people are uh, not able to find a desire that is stronger than the drive. So you'll remember earlier on in this class, I said something along the, the lines of, you know, to, to the extent that we are able to sort of like, like empower desire, we disempower the drive. Uh, and I talked about how the drive is a really destructive force in our lives about how, how the drive is something that destroys our bodies, our relationships, our careers, et cetera. And, and, and um, if, if jouissance is flowing into the drive, the drive gets really powerful and kind of does its crazy wreckage thing. And that the, a lot of times I think the trick of the work that I do, maybe that you do, uh, is to redirect jouissance away from the drive and, and, and into some form of a desire. And, and this, this film is a great way to kind of like show people this, I think. So there, there's, a, there's a part in the film, it's a really rough part to watch, I think. And by the way, I'm going to play a little bit of audio from the film, which has some swear words in it. So if you're listening to this, like, and you got your um, kids around or you got... I don't know, your um, your grandmother is hanging out with you or something like that, you might want to hit pause here and, and get yourself into a more convenient location because shortly I'm going to be playing some stuff that has some naughty words in it. But anyways, having said that, you've been warned. Um, what this film shows uh, in this one scene, which is like the, it's the fight scene kind of near the end of the movie between Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, um, between Nicole and Charlie, their character names. It shows um, really well that how the drive functions, I think. So here's the thing about the drive. The drive is destructive, but it's a, it's, and it, it makes us do destructive things, 
when we're under the power of the drive, we, we wreck stuff. We say really vicious, mean, nasty, terrible things to ourselves and to others. And the thing about it is that when we're in the moment where the drive is kind of like controlling what's happening, we're enjoying the destruction that we're causing. That's what the drive does. The drive is destruction. And, and when we're in the throes of the drive and we're destroying, we're having a great time destroying. We feel good destroying when we're in the, the throes of the drive. Um, and, and the fight scene shows that. I mean, the, the thing that I'm going to play for you here, you're going to hear it. You're going to hear people starting to get sort of uh, caught up in their drive. And you're going to, I hope, hear them say really mean things. And you're going to recognize that in that moment, they're, they're liking it, right? They're saying these things and they like the fact that they're like hurting the other person. There's enjoyment in it. There's jouissance in hurting the other person. And the other great thing about this scene is that while it shows that, it also shows that when people sort of become uh, taken over by the drive and they say vicious things and they enjoy saying them, it shows the devastation that the drive leaves in its wake. And I think that this is really important because doing work with couples, if you do it well, you might be able to save them in a sense, the um, prevent them, I guess, from falling victim to the drive because the drive makes people do terrible, terrible things like this. You're being so much like your father. Do not compare me to my father. I didn't compare you to him. I said you were acting like him. You're exactly like your mother. Everything you're complaining about her, you're doing. You're suffocating Henry. First of all, I, I love my mother. She was a wonderful mother. Just repeating what you told me. Secondly, how dare you compare my mothering to my mother? I may be like my father, but I am not like my mother. You are. And you're like my father. You're also like my mother. You're all the bad things about all of these people. But mostly your mother. When we would lie in bed together, sometimes I would look at you and see her and just feel so gross. I felt repulsed when you touched You're me. You're a slob. I made all the beds, clothes, all the cabinets. I picked out of you like Makes an infant. Makes me want to peel my skin off. You'll never be happy. In LA or anywhere, you think you found some better opposite guy than me, and in a few years, you rebel against him because you need to have your voice. But you don't want a voice. You just want to fucking complain about not having a voice. I think about being married to you and that woman is a stranger to me. I mean, we had a... Child's You've marriage. You've gone back to your life before you met me. It's pathetic. People used to tell me that you were too selfish to be a great artist, and I used to defend you. They were absolutely right. All your best acting is behind you. You're back to being a hack. You gaslighted me. You're a fucking villain. Oh, you want to present yourself as a victim because it's a good legal strategy? Fine. But you and I both know you chose this life. You wanted it until you didn't. You used me so you could get out of L.A. I didn't use you. You did, and then you blamed me for it. You always made me aware of what I was doing wrong, how I was falling short. Life with you was joyless. What, so then you had to go and fuck someone you else? You shouldn't be upset that I fucked her. You should be upset that I had a laugh with her. Do you love her? No, but she didn't hate me. You hated me. You hated me. You fucked somebody we worked with. You stopped having sex with me in the last year. I never cheated on you. That was cheating on me. But there's so much I could have done. I was a director in my 20s who came from nothing and was suddenly on the cover of fucking Time Out New York. I was hot shit and I wanted to fuck everybody and I didn't. And I loved you and I didn't want to lose you. But I'm in my 20s and I didn't want to lose that too and I kind of did. 
And you wanted so much, so fast. I didn't even want to get married. Fuck it. There's so much I didn't do. <laughs> oh, thanks for that. You're welcome. I can't believe I have to know you forever. Oh, you're fucking insane. And you're fucking winning. Are you kidding me? I wanted to be married. I'd already lost. You didn't love me as much as I loved you. What does that have to do with L.A.? What? You're so merged with your own selfishness, you don't even identify it as selfishness anymore. You're such a dick! Every day I wake up and I hope you're dead. Dead like if I could guarantee Henry would be okay. I'd hope you'd get an illness and then get hit by a car and die. I'm sorry. So in that scene, what, what, when you watched it, what I hope you saw, when you listened to it just now, what I hope you heard was uh, people talking about each other and, and, and you heard them gradually starting to come under the um, very seductive power of the drive and you heard the drive kind of take over and really get nasty. And then you, you heard what happens after that, right? This doesn't need to happen. You know, a lot of times, I mean, it does. And, and I don't think if it does, it makes anybody a monster or anything like that, but it doesn't, it might not need to happen. And, and part of the ways to prevent it from happening is again, by redirecting the jouissance away from destroying the other person or, or whatever towards something else. And, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about that. Maybe in the last hour of the class on, on Saturday. Uh, so yeah, that's it. I'm going to stop talking here. Hopefully this has been interesting. Put some thoughts in your mind. And uh, there's going to be one more podcast lecture coming up here in just a bit. Make sure you listen to that one too. And I will see you all on Saturday. Till then, take care.